Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Part two from the field with Spoke Hollow this week features Dr. Mark Merriweather Vorderbergen. And this one was kind of serendipity. Mark was giving a class in edible and medicinal plants, kind of a foraging class, the same day that I was out on the river with my wife fishing. We got off the water, and Mark and Josh, uh, Josh Crumpton from, from the last episode, said, uh, jump in the ranger, we're, we're looking for mushrooms. So we went uh, foraging for the rest of the afternoon, and uh, I had a great time. I learned a lot just watch, watching these guys walk around the woods. And uh, I said, I got to do a podcast with this dude. And so we, we sat down and recorded for 30, 40 minutes. And uh, he's he's a really interesting guy. He's got quite a background as a chemist and really has become the leading expert in terms of medicinal and edible plants in Texas. So I'd encourage everyone to go to foragingtexas.com to see more of his work and enjoy this episode. We had a good time. Poison ivy, cucumber weed, false dandelion, lichen, turk's cap, ball moss, agarita, cedar, cedar sage, cleavers. <laughs> so that was an audio test, but uh, he didn't know I was recording, so... I'm sad. <laughs> I could keep going. These are the, cl- the plants we saw today at Spoke Hollow in the foraging class. I bet you could. I'm sitting here with Dr. Mark Merriweather Vorderbergen. Mark, how are you? I'm doing great. I we spent ha- the day out in nature. I'm happy. Yeah, we had fun. I was not in your class this morning, but uh, got to walk around with you. Before we get into that, tell me about yourself and everything that you do. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we got like four hours, right? Yeah. All right. So, hi. Like you said, my name is Dr. Mark Merriweather Vorderbergen, uh, professionally trained. I'm a PhD chemist, uh, spent many, many years doing chemistry stuff, but at the same time, I'm a naturally, uh, nationally recognized expert on edible and medicinal wild plants. I spend my evenings and weekends teaching people, reconnecting them to nature and all the amazing plants around us that we used to eat but stopped eating for some reason and trying to bring them back, get them into the diet. A good way of describing me, I am a subversive caveman. Yeah. So maybe we can dwell on that. <laughs> that came up uh, previously. You were talking about your ideas on being a modern caveman, essentially. Can we elaborate on that? Sure. How that makes its way into your different practices in, in medicinals and uh, foraging? Excellent. Yeah, great question. So, yeah, the caveman, if you think about it, the Homo sapiens have been, have been around for 83,000 generations And before that, there were other proto-humans that had already mastered tools, already mastered pottery and controlled fire. So we go back, you know, 100,000 years, sometimes depending on how you base it, 500,000 years. Most of that time, we were living in a very different world than we are living in now. We have evolved 
in this wild system, you know, the 83,000 generations, that's what our body is designed for. It's not designed for Kroger's and roads and sidewalks and and clothing for that matter. <laughs> and so one of the things I'm trying to Mark do- Mark is naked right now. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> hey, a loincloth is not naked. Luckily we found a rabbit today. <laughs> joking, joking. So yeah, so one of the things in my long study of primitive humans and their dietary habits and their physical actions is you can trace a lot of our modern lifestyle illnesses to the fact that we no longer live like cavemen. Um, and this is as simple as walking on uneven ground. This is a wonderful example. I tell people now the world is flat. We have flat roads, we have flat floors, everything is nice and smooth because it's more convenient for us to traverse across a flat surface. But that's not how we evolved. We evolved walking across rocks and roots and muds and slippery stuff. And to do so, if you are out walking in uneven, unbalanced terrain, you require a lot of brain power. Your brain is constantly taking the senses from your feet and your body and adjusting it to get across this potentially dangerous surface. So it is exercise for our brain. That's how our brain evolved. The Japanese have done some really great studies on aging because demographically the Japanese culture is the oldest in the world and they're in a lot of danger of being overrun with the elderly. So they're putting a lot of effort into finding ways of keeping them healthy. And one of the great things they found is having them, you know, from as young as possible, constantly spending some time, ideally every day, walking on uneven surfaces because that stimulates the brain. It exercises the brain, which helps stave off dementia and senility and all that sort of thing. It's great exercise for the brain. But along with that, it also works on the core muscles, the muscles that are responsible for the balance. So you get a stronger core, which has all sorts of health benefits. It also improves balance. So you're less likely to fall, break a hip. That's really a death sentence in the elderly. If you break a hip, most people die within a year after that because it's, oh, wow. it so limits their lifestyle that it's just like, game over, man, game over. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that's just one of the many things you can incorporate into your life to try and bring back the evolutionary actions that our body craves and uses to maintain proper health to avoid a lot of what we call lifestyle health yeah. issues now, the high blood pressure and you know, nervous tics and everything like that. Yeah. And your interest or your expertise specifically seems to be in medicinal plants and edible plants in Texas. You wrote the book, literally. Yep. Yep. Uh, can you talk about that and how you developed that, uh, that knowledge? Okay, sure. So both my parents, I, I actually grew up in Minnesota. I did not move to Texas until 1997 after I finished grad school. Uh, but growing up in Minnesota, my parents are big outdoors people. They're both in their late 80s now, and they're still getting as much time outside in the woods as possible. And they would take me and my brothers out there every day for a walk. And as we were out there, mom would be pointing out the plants her mom and her grandma used medicinally. Dad would be pointing out the plants that they would eat. We would harvest the plants. We would incorporate the plants in our diet. It was just something we did. And so at that time, I was just fascinated that there's all this food here. We didn't have to go to the grocery store. I, I would take classmates out in the woods and say, look, you can eat this and this and this. And they were amazed. It's like, don't you know this? Didn't your parents teach you this? <laughs> So, so it was cultural. It was it was tradition. Yeah, it was just something. My mom actually is horribly embarrassed by the fact that I teach these classes that I travel because that's what poor people ate. 
Oh. <laughs> and so the fact that you know we ate it growing up would be an indicator that we grew up poor. We didn't grow up rich, <laughs> but uh, you know we weren't poor, so that all we had to eat were weeds. But yeah. you know it was somewhere that, and it was just more of a a thing we did because you know it was free food and it was fun and you know it wore out us boys you know when I say boys they were only me and my two brothers there were no sisters and so you know it was just you know but when you have three boys all born within a two-year period it gets tiring so they take us out in the woods and wear us out so your eye for nature for identifying plants was already developed at a young age okay when I moved to Texas in 1997 I, I was big into hiking in fact the the name Meriwether comes from my hiking buddies. It was my trail name because I would always, when we were out, I'd be looking at the plants, recording the plants, drawing the plants, taking photographs of the plants, trying to identify the plants and seeing what they could be used for. Um, and so that was Mary, Mary Weather Lewis's job in the, in the Lewis and Clark expedition. So it just became the name. But when I moved to Texas, um, I was mainly looking for places to hike and camp and backpack and kayak and all that stuff. And you go to the internet, but back in 1997, there wasn't a good internet resource on outdoor stuff in Texas. So being an overachiever, I set out and created one. And so every weekend I'd go to some different state park or camping or hiking or backpacking, all this sort of stuff. And then I'd write up my thoughts and experiences on there. And what really got people interested though, is when I'd also talk about some of the edible and medicinal plants I was finding. And so by 2005, 2006, people would start emailing me saying, hey, we're going camping next weekend. Uh, will you come and teach us wild edibles? And it's like, will there be beer? Yes, there will be beer. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> you know, away we go. And so I'd go yeah. weekend and show them. And then by 2008, people started offering money to, to teach them. It's like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. So I did that. And then, yeah, it just kind of exploded. Uh, 2008 is then also when I set up the website, foragingtexas.com. Uh, currently, it has over 225 plants and mushrooms, edible and medicinal uses, multiple pictures, you know, the close-up of the leaves, close-up of the flowers, the plant at different times of the year. If there's a toxic mimic, there'll be a side-by-side picture with detailed instru- instructions how to tell them apart. Everything you need to learn about the edible plants in Texas. Um, I will say, like I said, there's 225 plants. I have another 150 that I have pictures of that I need to get on the website yet. And then about another hundred that I have to get pictures of yet wow. before it's finished. So now, this is <laughs> wow. Was there any trial and error? Because you're coming from you were not from Texas. Did you have any uh, any mistakes along the way where you ate something you shouldn't have? <laughs> okay, so funny story. The only time I've ever poisoned myself eating something in the wild was actually eating some grasshoppers <laughs> rather than the plants. So when it comes to plants, I mean they're. The way I figure it out, first I identify the plant. I'll, I'll, I'll find a new plant. I'll, I'll mark down everything about the flower, the leaf, the growing area, the season, the what else is around it, and then use that to properly identify the plant. ID the you know get the scientific name. Yeah. And then I have a huge ethnobotanical library of historical records and other you know, books on plants and edible plants, medicinal plants, and all this sort of thing. And so. Uh, I would look then look up the plant in those books and try and figure out, you know, has someone else ate it? I'm not going to eat a strange plant. Yeah. Now, that being said, it's believed that as much as 80 to 90 percent of the plants used by Native Americans, uh, that knowledge has been lost. So there are probably a lot of plants out there that are edible that we just don't know anymore are edible. Yeah. So, yeah. But in the case of poisoning myself with the grasshopper, uh, 
actually it was seven grasshoppers, but we were out on a canoe trip, me and my buddy, and we found uh, these big, slow-moving grasshoppers. And we thought, well, you know, a lot of cultures eat them. Let's roast them up. They tasted like steak. They were actually really good. They ended up being what's called the Eastern Lubber Grasshopper, which is, it basically looks like a monarch butterfly and a grasshopper had carnal knowledge of each other. And so it's a very bright orange and yellow and, and red grasshopper, which in retrospect should have been a warning. Yeah. The main food of that particular grasshopper is poison ivy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So and that it's was loaded. In your gastrointestinal. Yeah, <laughs> in my gut. Yeah. So I yeah. If you've ever tried to itch the inside of your stomach, it's oh my not God. easy. <laughs> well, that's not a bad track record for considering yeah. how many things you've probably eaten. I mean, watching you walk around the woods is like you're a kid in a candy store. <laughs> and it's pretty fun. I got to walk around with you just a little bit now. Um with Josh Crumpton and Spoke Hollow Outfitters. We were looking for morel mushrooms. Why didn't we find them? Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. So right now, uh, what is today? Uh, March 27th. Sure. In Wimberley. And right now, it's absolutely peak morel mushroom season in the Texas Hill Country, Austin area. And so I was looking for them. The the They like this sort of the... the Chalk Rock, the limestone, Austin limestone, they like a more basic soil. You will find them on the downside of hills, uh, in moist areas, usually under hardwoods. You'll find them under cedar, but you'll also find them under oak. The Spoke Hollow is loaded with these ecosystems that should have been primed for morel mushrooms. Yeah. But when we got out there, it was all tore up by pigs. Yep. So... So they, that was that was tough because we're looking and you're you're identifying all these cool spots. You're you're telling us exactly what to look for, and we're not seeing them. And then we realize there's pig damage everywhere. Yeah, and they've jumped the gun probably on yep on these eating these because, mushrooms before we can find them. Yep. As far as digestive nature, the pigs are the closest to humans of any animal out there. So it just probably isn't surprising. But you know, pretty much anything a human will eat, the pig will eat too. And they love the morel mushrooms. So, yeah, seeing all the pig scat and all the rooted up areas, it's like heartbreaking because I love morel mushrooms. And that's kind of why I scheduled the class for this weekend here at Spoke Hollow is to squeeze in mushroom hunting. Well, you did find some cool stuff. Tell me what you did find. Oh, wow. Okay, so (laughs) I I, I wrote down (laughs) the list, uh, the partial list of what we saw today during the four-hour class so, without further ado, corn salad, <laughs> sow thistle, dollar weeds, scarlet pimpernel, crow's poison, wild garlic, poison ivy, cucumber weed, false dandelion, lichen, turk's cap, ball moss, agarita, uh, cedars, cedar sedge, uh, sorry, cedar sage, cleavers, shepherd's purse, burr clover, silver leaf nightshade, whorehound, wood sorrel, prickly pear, cactus, trolla cactus, and hackberry. And then just walking around where we're the building where the studio is in or where we're, we're doing this podcast, there was true dandelion, there was henbit, there was ragweed, um, there was chickweed, and then uh, things. Oh, and Carolina bristle mallow, too. Hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff around here. Really, one of the great things about foraging in Texas, it's available all year round. Where I grew up in Minnesota, there's basically a four-month window where there isn't snow on the ground. Yeah. So you're very limited. But down here, every class you find, you know, the, the average class is four hours, and we always run out of time before we run out of time. And class. you do them year-round? All year. Well, okay, so I don't usually do them January into about mid-February because the weather gets iffy. If you have a cold front come through, something like that, it can screw up some of the plants. 
And then usually I don't teach a lot of classes like mid-June through, well, into September just because it's so damn hot. Most people don't want to be out there. So yeah. at that point, it's all mine. <laughs> That's my rest period when I go out in the woods and don't have to be showing people stuff. We didn't talk about uh, hunting and fishing. Do you do any hunting and fishing? Oh, hell yeah. I'm yeah? a huge hunter and fisher. Yes, oh, yes, cool. yes. Oh, cool. Okay. So yeah, a lot of people are surprised that they think for some reason I'm a vegan or something like that because I'm so deep into plants, the health benefits of the plants. It's not so much the health benefits of the plant. Well, there's a lot of health benefits of the plants, but it's also more the let gathering food be your medicine. You might have heard the old saying, let food be your medicine. I say let gathering food be your medicine. And while you can get all sorts of nutrients from the plants, there are certain things that are very hard to get. And mm -hmm. one of those big things is fats. Another thing is proteins. Um, and so that's where the animals come in. I love, I love the challenge. Uh, I'm a, you know, not a, not a trophy hunter. If I kill it, I eat it, which led to some mouse incidences, but we won't go there. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just the rule on our family. You know, yeah, yeah. There's no play killing. It's, uh, you know, you ate some mice. Let's not go there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there are a number of things I'm not proud of eating, but you know, <laughs> crickets, mice, yeah, or grasshoppers, turtles, yeah. grasshoppers, no, and crickets, oh, scorpions, scorpions are good. Okay. Yeah. Little wood scorpions around here. Oh yeah. They taste like a mixture of shrimp and cheese. What part which, do you have to cut off? So you cut off just the last uh, tail nodule with the actual stinger. Yeah. But leave everything else. Uh, you know the the Coleman lamps, the gas powered, you know, with the little yeah. mantle in there. So the top gets really hot. So you go out, you collect at night the scorpions using an ultraviolet flashlight because they glow really cool. It's like they're they're <laughs> these psychedelic things under black light. So they're really easy spot, and then you drop them on there, and they sizzle a little bit, and they pop, and when they kind of pop, they're ready to eat, and you. Just Eat the, the claws and everything else. I hope that you will show me that sometime. I, I'm constantly gnarly. looking. Yeah. Um, like a lot of people are probably thinking right now, hearing this, like I, I'm just not confident enough to eat some of these things. I'm not confident enough in my identify in identifying them, especially when it comes to mushrooms, because I feel like the downside is like you shit yourself to death. It's horrible. <laughs> so, yep. you know, how do you build that confidence as a forager and, you know, and okay. understand what you're looking so for? So I tell people, if you can tell the difference between a peach and a nectarine, you have the observational skills to learn edible plants. Okay. So it's just a matter of matching structures. In my classes and in my books and in my lectures and all that, um, I talk about when you are trying to identify a new plant, and you have some sort of reference guide, you know, whether it be the Peterson's Guide to Wild Edibles, my book, Idiot's Guide Foraging, some Texas wildflower book, anything like that. You want to match at least a minimum of five structural features on the plant to the guide. This can be how the leaves are attached to the, the stem. Are they opposite? Are they alternating? Are they opposite? Alternating. Yeah. Uh, the vein pattern of the leaves. Is the vein pattern pinnate? Is it palmate? Is it parallel? So you do need a basic knowledge of botany. Yeah. And but it's easy to develop up. And especially with edible plants. So here's the secret. All us edible plant instructors, we talk behind the scenes. And we've all kind of focused on what structural features we are going to point out to people to use them to pop, positively identify the plant. You know, the flower structures, the leaf structures, the bark structures, and where it's growing. So you don't have to know every botanical name for every plant of the structure you, you know you can use you know what are the, the three types of veins 
There's the three types of the edge of the leaf. There's two ways the leaves are attached to the plant, basically, and a few other things like that. And so actually, once you spend a little time doing it, you, 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 you drill it into you and it becomes a lot quicker. It's like anything, the more you practice, the quicker it, it occurs. Yeah. Now with mushrooms, with that, I say you want to match eight to 10 structural features, okay. which freaks people out. Because when they picture a mushroom, you know, they're thinking, you know, Mario Kart, they got the, the cap yeah. with the red, you yeah, know, this yeah, yeah. white dots yeah. and then, you know, there's like three structural features there. No, actually you got to really look at them and then you will see there's, you know, dozens of structural features yeah. on a mushroom. But if you zero on, there's eight to 10 that you need to match to get to the level I feel you can confidently properly identify the mushroom to eat it and then you can do i even tried doing some spore prints one time you can do that yep that's a that's one of the structural features the color of the spores it's very specific for the species of the mushroom hmm. yeah i think uh i'm really impressed obviously by your breadth of knowledge and it was really fun walking in the woods with you i definitely <laughs> encourage people to uh look into your classes if you're in the area look into your book and your website if they're not in the area um, but lastly, I think one thing that we, I've been thinking about since we spoke earlier is this balance of science and spiritualism. You're a very science-minded person. Um, you seem to be. I, I, well, I'm a scientist. You know? Yeah, you're a scientist. You're a trained. You're a doctor in... Uh, so, Master's in Medicinal Chemistry, PhD in Physical Organic Chemistry. So, there you go. knowing how the molecules interact with other molecules. But you're also you also have a very holistic, spiritual understanding of nature. How do you balance the two? What's your philosophy there? It's not hard at all. It's breathing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there, like in the Bible, it says, you know, render unto Caesar what Caesars do, and render unto God what God is do. And the plant, you know, there's a science. Look at it this way. Okay, here here's a great way of, of looking at it. You keep breaking nature down. You have the ecosystem, then you have the plants, and then in the plants you have the leaves, and then in the leaves you have the chemistry going on. You can get down to a certain point. But that doesn't say why all this is here, and what all this means, and what is our role in it. You can't get there scientifically. That's where you have to have a, a better understanding of the big picture. and where not only are we here today but where did we come from where are we going where is where we're going where we should go or do we need to switch somewhere else but yeah trying to see the big picture beyond the individual tangible touchable parts mm -hmm. you know just that 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 extra spark that you need and one thing they show the more time people spend in the wild the more they realize there's things behind the scene that's where I think the power of stories comes in, and it's such a driving force. This has been another thread that's kind of picked up through my conversations with people is that the the force of cultural and sociological religious systems, and um, that is such a powerful driving force in our decisions in our understanding of where we are in the cosmos. And so sometimes I think it'd be, it can be difficult to explain something scientifically and then also accept the more mysticism, the mythical explanation of it or the story behind it. So I don't know. It's just it's difficult with nature when things are so interconnected, interwoven, 
you want to break everything down and categorize it and name it. And sometimes that's not the right way to conceive of it. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the things, that's one of the big problems with plant books, whether it be an edible plant book or just a wildflower identification. They treat each plant as an individual, as in some ways they should, but they don't teach you the connectivity between the plants. One of the big things, the more time you spend, especially looking for edible and medicinal plants, you start to see ecosystems. How do I want to say this? It's you hard see, to word. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, you know, the basic boils down. If I see cleavers, there's probably henbit and wood sorrel nearby too. You start to, and there's a thing called permaculture, permanent agriculture, where you create an ecosystem out of edible plants. Mm -hmm. And they talk about plant guilds, where you have the plants, you know, a, a functioning ecosystem made of a collection of plants that really like to hang out to each other, support each other, and work as a native ecosystem. But you're making a synthetic form using purely edible plants. Yeah. Because most of them don't realize most of the ecosystem already is made of edible plants. But you know, yeah. But yeah, the the, the relationships. It, you know, people have relationships. You know, I have a relationship. Josh, all this. But plants have the same sort of relationships, and we always think of relationships as just a human. Thing. It's not. Everything mm -hmm. is in relationship with everything else around them in the ecosystem. I think a good example would be the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash. Native First Nations peoples growing these plants had a story about them that made sense of why those plants work together. Mm -hmm. And that story, in some ways, is just as valid to help explain why this works as is this, the modern scientific um, explanation yeah. and so sometimes I get a little bit caught up in depends what day it is but <laughs> do I want to accept the spiritual uh, mystical explanation or do I want to use my my scientific method on this um, and it seems like you've just achieved a really good balance there yeah thank you um, and this triggered a thought so when you think about science the thing to remember about science, it's not the truth, it's a model. It is a model that is explaining observations, what you see, and if it's a good model, it allows you to interact properly with the system and get predictable results. So when it comes right down to it, it doesn't matter if it's, doing the air quotes here, scientific, or mystical. If it gives you a model that you can use to interact with the universe in a way that allows you to you know, predict the outcome successfully, in the end, that's all that matters. Yeah. You know, some way of interacting with the universe in a way that allows you not to control it, but to exist within its rules and live by those rules and by understanding those rules, however you want to phrase those rules, hey, you know, whatever works for you. <laughs> whatever works, man. Well, um, I do want to talk about your relationship with Josh and with Spoke Hollow and kind of what's in store for you. It sounds like you've got some exciting stuff coming up and then maybe we can wrap up. Sure. Okay, so I actually teach these foraging classes all over Texas. I travel all over, but I've developed a good relationship with Josh out at Spoke, uh, Spoke Hollow Outfitters. Uh, he has a you know, access to a thousand acres of land where his goal 
is to keep it out of the hands of housing developers and modern life by creating a place where people can come and learn how to interact with nature you know through all sorts of different classes the the foraging classes i teach there is just one aspect but um, i like to think it's a really important aspect because it's hard to get more intimate with nature than eating it <laughs> and walking around and learning all these things uh, right at the beginning of the class i had the people look down at their feet and say okay how many edible plants do you see and they just saw that like well, not even edible. How many plants do you see? And it's like three, four. And it's like, actually, there's about 14 plants just here under your feet. And we went through and started looking at this one's edible and this one's edible and, you know, walking through. But, you know, opening their eyes to just how much is actually here. When you look at something closely, how many different plants make up even in a yard where it's just grass? No, there's a lot of other stuff hidden in there. Yeah. So trying to attach people to nature. And so that's Josh's goal, too, with this is to help people understand the human role in nature. We shouldn't be treating it as a museum where you just look and don't touch, but you can't you know, run rampant through it and suck everything out of it either because then when it's gone, we've lost so much more beyond just the plants and so forth. Yeah. So he's trying to help people understand nature, their ways they can interact properly or, or sustainably probably the best word, interact sustainably with nature. And by doing so, it makes them more likely to protect nature and keep it around. Mm. Now, if you're sitting on a, you know, a couch playing video games or surfing Facebook, you're probably not giving a lot of thought to nature. You're, you know, psychologically, yeah, yay nature, protect nature. But once you're actually invested in it, you've eaten it, you've touched it, you've smelled it, you've walked through it, you've learned all these relationships and all this amazing stuff, it's like, wow, this is great. I got to keep this around. I need to share this with my kids and their grandkids. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's the goal. And I'm, I'm very, very happy and blessed to be part of his vision to bring that because it, it ties in perfectly with mine. That's awesome. Yeah, I talked to him uh, just now and I think hmm. I haven't known him very long, but I've had a few conversations with him now. And what I, I, I recognize him as sort of a magnet for people like you yep. and maybe vice versa as well but I think that that putting that out really attracts other people who are interested in the same thing and he's building something really special here so I'm, I'm happy to have experienced it um, Mark thank you so much for talking with me please plug everything you've got the website the book anything Go for it. Okay, so the the center of my existence is foragingtexas.com, www.foragingtexas.com. From there, it has all the plants, a bunch of recipes, a ton of other information. From there, it also leads to the social media side. So on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash user Dr. Merriweather. Uh, there's over 100 hours of videos on plants and science and uh, I have an hour-long presentation I absolutely love where I track a grain of sand from the stream behind my house all the way back to the Big Bang. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what each step of the way, what you know was involved in making the grain of sand. So that's the kind of go, but it, mostly it's plants, but I like to go science and I like to go philosophical. So there's that on Facebook. Uh, the Foraging Texas Facebook page or you know, facebook.com slash Foraging Texas. I pretty much try every day to post some plant that I found in Texas. 
uh, or plant articles or science articles or you know interesting plant caveman type right. stuff all that th- sort of thing Instagram I have that uh, but the other big thing that I'm really excited about is medicinemanplantco.com so like I said uh, as an expert in the medicinal properties of plants I finally made the leap into creating a company where I supply ancient plants for modern issues. So currently we have the brain pill, the liver pill, the immune system pill, the blood pressure pill, the libido pill. And then at the end of April, we'll have the serenity pill and uh, the kidney pill. What's the production like in terms of your... um supply chain and how are you making these oh god it's a nightmare oh, really? <laughs> yeah with the covid i have a feeling so, you have high standards for you. oh yeah so okay so here's the thing there are uh companies i don't know so it's what's called the toll manufacturer like there are a lot of companies out there big names that supply herbal supplements the paperwork involved and the FDA regulations on storage and equipment and calibration, all this stuff, oh, it's huge. Absolutely. You have no idea. You know, imagine doing taxes three hours a day, every day, seven days a week. Oh my gosh. Um, so there are companies that have set up and they take care of all that. You give them the formulation, you hook them up with suppliers or they can have suppliers too. So it's, it's you know what you're looking for. And then they will, uh, arrange the testing or I, in my case, I, I trust no one. I, I spent many years uh, in chemistry, in chemical plants. I've seen people do dumb things, so I have no trust whatsoever. So yeah. when the herbs come in, I get them tested for heavy metals and pesticides and fillers and make sure genetic testing, they are what they said they are. Then they get put in the capsules, blended, put in the capsules, and then I take random samples and send them out to be tested again to make sure, okay, that nothing slipped in accidentally during production. And then finally they are released, uh, sold through Amazon or the medicinemanplantco.com website. So yeah, as far as standards, highest standards you can get out there. I assumed. And then the formulations, these are custom formulations based on me, based on my traditional herbal knowledge backed by science but then also blended to avoid interacting with a lot of prescription medications um, and also working together bioavailability. You know, some things, some herbs are great for you, but you can't absorb a lot unless you absorb this other herb too. And so blending that in there. So yeah, there's a a lot of work that goes into it to make what I consider to be the premier. I mean, I'm talking about my baby here. So yeah, yeah, I'm going to pick some up. I need something for inflammation. Okay, we're working on that. We don't have something right now. Uh, let's talk afterwards and find out what the root cause is, and then I can better prescribe for it. That's the one other thing. If you contact Medicine Man Plant Co., you're contacting me. And so if, if people have health issues, I'll work with them and decide, okay, you know, maybe you shouldn't be taking this one, you should be taking that. Or right now, I don't have something to deal with that, so go here to the WIS website and get this and this and this. And, you know, yeah. I... I grew up on a miracle on 34th street, you know, the Christmas thing. And there's that scene where Santa Claus sends the people off to the other store. You know, if, if it's going to help people, I want to help people. I will send them to a competitor to get something we don't have. Not a problem because that's the goal. Awesome. Well, uh, it was really fun. I already learned a lot in just a couple hours hanging out with you. Hopefully we get to do this again soon and, uh, let's hunt together. Oh, hell yeah. Cool. Thanks. Take care of the pigs. (laughs) All right. See ya.